0: Welcome to Community Christian Anywhere, we're an online community of people who believe that even though life can be difficult, complicated, and tiring, Jesus offers a life that is easy, light, and full of rest. And the life Jesus offers isn't simply membership to a religion or a personal philosophy of life, but He offers to transform us into people who live and love just as He did in this world. And so we wanna be a community who are committed to loving everyone just as Jesus has loved us. And so no matter who you are, what you believe about God or what you've done, we want you to be a part of this Jesus movement to love everyone always. And what we hope is that throughout our time together, you experience that God loves you and that he cares about your life. In fact, we say all the time, no matter what you think about God, We believe he can't stop thinking about you. We believe he's for you and he only has good things for your life. And so no matter where you're watching this from, on your phone, on your lunch break, hopefully not while you're driving, we believe that God is present with you right now. And if you can stay open to that, I believe he wants to make himself real to you. And if at any point during this video, you have a question or maybe you feel God speaking to you and you wanna speak to someone about that, There will be a number on screen the whole time. You can text that number at any point and someone from our team will respond as soon as we can. Because even though right now this is just a video you're watching, we hope that your interaction with us moves from just being content that you consume to a community that you're committed to. And one easy way to get more involved with our community is by going to our website, cccanywhere.com. There are a lot of resources there, including some material specifically designed for your children. The best way for you to get involved with our community is by clicking on the card on that website that says, join our Facebook group. You'll be taken straight to our Community Christian Anywhere group on Facebook, where we can connect with each other during the week. All you have to do is click the join group button and you'll take one quick and easy step into community this week. All right, well, right now we are going to get into our main idea for the day. We're starting a new series of teachings that feature voices from all around our country about some of the most important questions about life and the Christian faith. Today we're going to be discussing the question Can we trust that Jesus really rose from the dead? And we're going to be hearing from a best selling author and cold case detective named Jay Warner Wallace. Wallace has been recognized for his work as a cold case detective. was awarded the Police and Fire Medal of Valor Sustained Superiority Award for his continuing work on cold case homicides as well as receiving the Cops West Award after solving a 1979 murder. And his cold cases have been featured more than any other detective on NBC's Dateline. At the age of 35, Wallace became a Christian through investigating the claims of the New Testament of the Bible, using his skills as a cold case detective. And utilizing skills developed over two decades of experience on cold case homicides, Wallace provides his audiences with the tools they will need to investigate the claims of Christianity and makes a convincing case for the truth of the Christian worldview. And today, we're going to listen in on an interview between Wallace and the campus pastor of a church in Austin, Texas, called Gateway Church.
1: Uh, You know, I read your book, uh, Cold Case Christianity, over the weekend, uh, like I would said. And what I want to say is that you talked right early on in the book about having presuppositions and how they can affect our worldview. Can you speak just a little bit about that?
2: Look, if we're asking a question, is Christianity true? Uh, if you're going to start off with the conclusion, it's not, okay, well, then you're not going to get very far because you've already decided. You're not open to this situation. You've already decided. This happens lots of times in, in criminal cases where you walk into a crime scene and you, because you've done a thousand of these, right? You've done so many of these, you know, I've got a dead body and, and who does she know? If it's a woman on the ground, you're looking for her boyfriend, you're looking for her husband. That is, you know, most of the time, probably somebody she knows is involved as the killer. But if I start off, assuming it's somebody she knows, I have to leave that, kind of hold it open-handedly, right? I cannot make a decision that blocks out every other possibility. Here's what happens when you do that. You'll start to see the evidence in the crime scene through your presupposition. And something that you might be able to attribute to a boyfriend or a husband, you will attribute to that boyfriend or husband. Even though they may not even exist, you just thought, well, it's probably going to be a boyfriend or a husband. And I have been on a couple of these cases where guys, where I have assumed something up front. So I always say, look, whatever your investigation is, don't assume you know who the suspect is or what's true or false until you start digging through the evidence. Let the evidence tell you what's true or false. Don't be a know-it-all is what I typically say. And because I have false started. I can remember one case famously that I I started. And afterwards I had no credibility with my team. I was <laughs> so the first homicide I ever worked. And and I sure enough I bit quickly on what I thought would be the killer. And it wasn't him. It was somebody else who lived with him. And so I made the mistake. Don't be a know-it-all. At least be fair about your presuppositions. And for us, honestly, most of the time it is that I presume up front that nothing supernatural could ever happen. Jesus could be a teacher. I'm, a, I'm good with that. But don't tell me Jesus walked on water because I already assume up front that nothing miraculous like that ever happens. So therefore, I'm going to reject out of hand because I'm holding a presuppositional bias against anything that's outside of an explanation using just space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. Well, folks, there's lots of stuff that's outside of space-time physics, uh, space-time matter physics and chemistry. You can give an example of that. Big Bang cosmology demonstrates that the universe came into existence from nothing. This is what the science demonstrates. This is called the standard cosmological model. That means whatever started all space-time and matter must be outside of space-time or matter. You cannot create yourself. Well, that means you've already embraced something outside of space, time, and matter. Why would you hold a presuppositional bias against things that are outside of space, time, and matter if you begin by accepting such a thing? So just just hold on to your biases and be fair.
1: Something that really stuck out to me, you talk about uh, the difference between what's possible and what's reasonable. Uh, I wish I had really known about that uh, as raising kids. Uh, now I'm going to use it on my kids because uh, it's, it's a fascinating principle, very simple, but it makes all the difference. Can you explain just a little bit about the difference between what's possible and what's reasonable?
2: Well, a lot of times we, we, we resist a claim. Because we have a standard of proof that we think I have to have every question answered and I have to get beyond all possible doubt before I can decide something is true. Well, we ask that question in jurors when we evaluate them for criminal trials. Are you the kind of person who has to have every question answered? Are you the kind of person who can't have a possible doubt? And if they say, well, yeah, I'm really a sticker that way, well, then you're excused because we cannot put you on a panel. That standard of proof beyond a possible doubt is not the legal standard for the most heinous crimes in America. That standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a lower standard. I've had cases, they're called no body missings, where you have a, a woman who was killed by her husband and he got rid of her body and buried it someplace and you don't even have a body and you don't know if she's just missing or if she's actually dead. And so I can't answer questions for the jury. I had one case, for example, where I couldn't tell you. How did you he kill her? Don't know. What room was she in? I don't know. Uh, what did he do with her body? I don't know. Where is she today? I, I don't know. Um, how did he move her body without being detected? I, I don't know. What did, how did he move her car? Uh, I don't know. I could not answer what you might think are the most important questions you could possibly ask. But that wasn't my burden. I could demonstrate that he did it without knowing for sure how he did it. And that's a much lower standard. I get reasonable doubt. Now, I just if you're looking at Christianity for the first time, or you've been looking at it for years, at least be fair. There is no worldview you can hold from atheism to Buddhism to Hinduism to Baha'i, whatever it is. There is no worldview you can hold in which you can say truthfully that you have every question answered. As an atheist, I held a worldview. For 35 years, in which I could not really tell you with certainty how the universe came into existence, why it appears to be fine-tuned, how life emerged in the universe from non-life, why it appears to be design, biology, but in fact we would say it's not as an atheist, why we have minds in addition to brains, and why we have free agency our minds can think freely, why there's an objective moral standard, why there's even a standard of righteousness that we refer to when we say something is objectively evil. Look, I didn't have answers for any of those questions, but I was willing to hold on to my atheism. So it turns out that you are already holding a worldview for which you cannot answer every possible question. Don't let that stop you from considering Christianity.
1: Yeah, for those tuning in, just to maybe help you understand what's possible versus what's reasonable, it's possible I could grow a mohawk. It's not reasonable.
2: Judges actually tell juries not to get hung up on possible, they'll say in California, or imaginary doubts. Those are things you say, well, what if, And you imagine something like what if it was not she wasn't killed by her husband, but but a burglar happened to break into the house. Well, do you have any evidence of burglaries in that neighborhood at that time? Is there any forced entry in the house? No. Is there anything missing from the house from a burglary? No. then you're just what ifing. That's not based on evidence. That's based on your what ifing. And we don't allow you to what if in jury uh, deliberation. So you have to have some grounding, some basis in evidence for it to be a reasonable doubt.
0: So let's take a moment here to pause and reflect on all that we've heard so far. Maybe you're watching today and this has been interesting information, but you're not sure you can believe all of it just yet. Well, first, I'm really so glad you chose to join in with us. And I hope one thing that you take away from your time today is that we really are a community who welcomes questions. We believe that the church should be the one place where everyone feels safe and welcome to question and doubt and be skeptical because all truth is God's truth. And so if something is really true, we believe it. It'll always lead us back to the God who loves us. Maybe you're not sure you can trust that, so I want to invite you in the following moments of quiet reflection we'll have that you try your best to be open about why that is, Be honest with yourself about any doubts or questions you have. Maybe you have past hurts or experiences or even relationships that might be keeping you from building trust with the church community. Maybe you should take this time and just be open about any preconceived ideas you may have that lead you to doubt Jesus' resurrection. Maybe you could use this time to offer a prayer to God. Just be honest saying, God, I'm not sure you're even real, but if you are, Please make yourself real to me. I believe He wants to do that. And if at any point during this time you have a question that just won't go away or you find an insight about yourself that you want to share with someone, would, would you text me through the number you see on screen right now? I'd love to talk with you about that. Now, if you're here today and you would call yourself a believer and maybe you're not sure how all of this really applies to you today, I'd love for you to take these moments of silence to just open yourself up to what God might have to say to you today. Maybe through this time, you'll get a better picture of how powerful and mighty and beautiful Jesus is. Maybe through this time, God will bring someone to your mind who needs to hear this message today and you want to share it with them. Maybe this will just be a moment of quiet for you to rest and remember how much God loves you. And if you feel God speaking to you throughout this time, would you reach out to me by texting the number on screen? I'd love to talk with you about that. But as we move into this minute of quiet reflection, I want to pray that God will open our hearts and minds to whatever he has to say to us today. And to do that, I'm going to put up some words of Jesus on screen, and they'll stay up there for the entire minute of silence to help you focus on God's desire for you. Let's read them out loud right now anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. So let's listen for what God might have to say to us today. So no matter whether you felt God speaking or not during that time, I hope you took away most from that moment, that God is for you and He wants you to know Him as deeply as He knows you because no matter what you think about God, we believe He can't stop thinking about you. And let's keep that in mind as we move forward into the rest of our interview for today.
1: Yeah, can you walk us through how do you determine between what's possible versus what's reasonable what process do you follow uh to show that evidence
2: well we don't do that sometimes people will say is it a percentage <laughs> like no if i'm at 85 percent, is that enough for me to see? no it's not a percentage how would you ever ca- calculate that percentage we tell jurors to use their common sense number one that's a jury instruction and we tell jurors that they are not to consider imaginary claims like you're going to have six weeks with these defense team and the prosecution team and they're going to present all kinds of evidence your conclusions must be drawn from evidence presented. And most of the time, we'll say things like, yeah, but you know, what if? Or um, you'll try to imagine. If you find yourself imagining, you're in the realm of possible doubt and not in uh, reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubts are always grounded. So here's what I would say. you got your doubts. Write them on the wall. Now, once you've written them all down, ask yourself, is this doubt caused? So, for example, I've heard people say, hey, you know what? There's no way that those Gospels could be written that early. Now, I make a case in that book for manuscript case based on manuscript evidence for why I believe the Gospels are written early. Now, if you say, well, no, they they must have been written late, second, third century. Well, then write down what is the evidence upon which you are basing that doubt? Now, it turns out, as I talk to skeptics about this, most skeptics would say, well, it's got to be after 70 AD because there are accurate predictions In the gospels in which Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. That didn't happen until 70 AD. So therefore, the gospel author must have written this post 70 AD because I have a bias that tells me that I don't believe in predictions. I don't believe in prophecy. Now I can show you 10 pieces of manuscript evidence that demonstrate it's early, but what's keeping you out is you have a bias against the possibility. It's not like your bias is not like your doubts are based on manuscript evidence that demonstrates it's a late gospel. There is no manuscript evidence to demonstrate the Gospels are late. Instead, you have an imaginary doubt that you are based on your bias when all of the manuscript evidence says it's earlier. I think that's the difference between possible and reasonable doubt.
1: Yeah, that's good. You talk about abductive reasoning uh, in your book. Um, how do you lay that out?
2: And I'm just going to, I'm going to share a screen here so you can see it. So let me open that up. Now I'll tell you that, that we use abductive reasoning at every death scene because not every death scene is a murder scene. Uh, sometimes you people die for other reasons other than being killed. So I'm just going to start this with you real quick and then I'll, I'll share the screen with you. All right. So I want you to imagine you're going along with me and you're going to be at a, um, uh, a crime scene with me in which you are going to be uh, examining a dead body. Okay. Now, don't worry. This dead body is just my son. So here he is. Now, um, how do we know if this guy was killed? Well, there's four ways to die. We're going to base this death and we're going to figure it out based on the evidence that's in the room. So we're going to have to first look at the evidence that's in the room and ask the question, do we have a good reason to believe this is something other than uh, a natural death. Well, I'll give you an example. We're going to take two lists that begin with an E. One's a list of evidence, and one's a list of explanations. Now, the evidence we have in the room so far is we just have a dead guy laying face down. That's it. How do we explain dead guys laying face down? Well, they could die naturally. They could have died by accident. They could have died by some form of suicide, or they could have been killed by somebody. These are the four ways that people die. We're going to use abductive reasoning. We're going to compare evidence to explanations, that's what abductive reasoning is. Now, so far, all four of these are in play because he might've had a heart attack, he would look like that. If he accidentally took too many pills, he would look like that. If he intentionally took too many pills, he would look like that. If I poisoned him with too many pills, he would look like that. So right now, we really can't cross out anything here. But as we add details, so for example, if there was a pool of blood center torso, well, now we can go back and we can eliminate certain things because we have more evidence. And now it's no longer reason. Is it possible that it's a, a natural death? Yeah, but where are you going to bleed out center torso naturally? Okay, I would say anything is possible, but it's not reasonable, and that's why I cross it out. But everything else is still in play until I roll him over and say, see- no, what if he had a knife in his back? Okay, well, this would change things. And now I can say, well, accidental is probably not as reasonable. But if he can reach that knife with his hands, he could have still stabbed, okay, maybe not, but I- I'd still in play, suicide, and homicide, let's change it. What if he's got multiple stab wounds in his upper back? Well, now that changes things. Do you see what we're doing? We're simply adding to our evidence list, and then we are crossing out what is no longer reasonable. And this approach is no longer reasonable, it's called abductive reasoning, of comparing evidence. Now, we do the same thing with the, gospel, with the with the resurrection account. This is how I approach the resurrection. If you're telling me that you believe that the resurrection is true, well, I need to know what is your evidence for that. Now, m- granted, the evidence is going to come out of the claims of history. There are lots of claims related to the resurrection that history seems to affirm. At least the minimal claims would be that, hey, Jesus lived. If you think Jesus didn't live, some people think that Jesus is a a created mythology. I am more than happy to, to, I've looked at that deeply. That's even Bart Ehrman, the skeptic would say that those folks who think that Jesus never lived are out of their minds. And, And Bart's probably one of the more articulate skeptics of Christianity. So I would say that he lived, that he was executed on a cross, that afterwards the tomb was empty He died on that cross and was buried, but the tomb is empty later. I mean, if the tomb, look, if you want to end this thing in the first century, just get the body of Jesus and drag it around town. It's game over. No one ever did that. So it is pretty clear that if that was possible, they would have done it, (laughs) but they weren't able to do it. Also, you can get the witnesses to recant. That's the second way. Now, interestingly, the witnesses never recanted, but that's very minimal evidence. All that could be true, Jesse, and it could still be a lie, Christianity. There could be an empty tomb but it's still a lie. Somebody stole the body. There can be people who say it's true, but it's still a lie because they're lying or they're hallucinating. In other words, I have to list all the ways to explain the very minimal evidence that's in the room. And I did that as an atheist. As an atheist, I listed seven ways to explain the minimal data but I was willing to accept as an atheist about Jesus. And I simply went through each one to see if that explanation actually works. And it turns out that none of them work. Now you get to the Christian explanation, I still resisted it, but it does work best if I am willing to surrender my bias against the supernatural. What about
1: for for skeptics that say, well, maybe Jesus didn't die. Uh, Maybe that um, they were wrong. You know, it seems like an easy thing to spot, Jim, that uh, someone that's dead, but uh, being a homicide and cold case detective, uh, could you walk us through that even? Like, wh- what is that?
2: Uh, I, I'm with you. I think this is something that you could make this case that he's not dead. Because, look, if he's not dead, it's not a re- resurrection, it's just a resuscitation. He could be badly beaten, he could be unconscious on the. Uh, you know, according to scripture, he was executed with two other criminals thieves on the cross next to him. And when they came to collect the bodies, those two thieves were not yet dead. They broke their legs to make sure they were dead. Now, why didn't they break Jesus's legs? According to scripture, they didn't. Now, I want you to think about that. That means that, okay, you came by later and you executed three guys and two of them aren't dead. Why would you think the third one is dead? You could actually make a case that Jesus never died from the pages of scripture, okay? But there's an interesting piece of hidden science. It's in the gospel of John. In which John says they didn't break Jesus' legs, but they stabbed him with a spear. And from his side came a separation of blood and water. And I, I tell you, that was interesting to me. Here's why. I wanted to know, I know why water would separate from blood in a dead person whose heart has already stopped beating. I already know. I've seen it. So I know what that looks like. But how would John know? In other words, this is pretty advanced stuff. This is called plural effusion. And you can get either pericardial effusion is after your heart stops, you get a water sack. It kind of grows around your heart, but it's very small compared to the other kind of effusion, which is pleural effusion. If you're in the right position and your heart stops beating, your lungs will collect water. Now, if I stab your chest cavity, you'll see water separate out. Now, the question is, would John as a fisherman have known that? I don't think he does know that. I'll tell you why. If you read the church fathers who read about that passage and I don't care if it's Tertullian or whoever you read in the first five centuries, no one thinks John's telling the truth about that. Everyone says all the church fathers say it couldn't have been water. Why would there be water coming out? It, it must just be an, uh, an uh, 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 he's alluding to something else. He is using a metaphor. He is, is an alleg- it's some kind, he's trying to make an allegory metaphor for the Holy spirit maybe, or for the water baptism. It cannot be water. Cause why would water come out of his chest? Well, we know now from the science that that's what happens in their plural effusion. But that means your heart has to already stop beating in order to get that kind of collection of water. Now, now that means he's already dead, based on a piece of hidden science in the Gospel of John. Also, let's be honest. Most of us who are watching or listening to this right now don't handle a lot of dead bodies. Some of us do. Some of us are first responders, or we work in mortuary homes, or we work in hospitals, and we've handled dead people. If you have you already know that dead people do not look like unconscious actors in performances. Okay. I can tell a dead person will come across the room. They, they behave differently. They look different. Now just because you and I in the 21st century are not familiar with death. This does not mean people in the first century weren't familiar with it. As a matter of fact, you, you had to give birth in your own family with midwives. You had to be there for all of that. You had to figure out how to do that. You had to figure out how to take care of dead bodies because there was no coroner. There was no funeral home to call and collect the body. The people who would be most familiar with death are not people in the 21st century, The people in the first century. And there are three things, it's called the mortis triad that occur when you die. We see it in homicide investigations all the time. The first one is you start to lose your temperature. Algor mortis. You start to to to, to cool down because your hot blood is not coursing through your veins. So if you touch dead people, they feel colder than living people because they're no longer. Uh, but the second uh, mortis, the mortis triad is rigor mortis. You start to get stiff. So if you're in a cross position and then I take you down from that cross position, it's not like your arms are going to flop down to your sides. They're going to slowly descend to your sides because uh, rigor mortis is sitting in. And third is probably the one that people don't even think about, but I think it's the most telling, and that's called liver mortis. And what that is is a discoloration of your skin based on the fact that once your heart stops pushing your blood, gravity starts to draw it. So if you die on your back and I get there and roll you over, your back's going to be discolored. It's going to be purple and and red and bruised looking because all the blood has settled. If you die in an upright position on a cross, your feet will swell and they will discolor. And all of these things would have been available to people in the first century who understood these obvious signs of death, even though you and I might be learning them right now for the very first time. So is it possible that he uh, didn't die? I always say, if you ask me if something's possible, I will always say yes. It's possible. You're not even listening to this right now. You're still in bed dreaming it, okay? There are people who think, philosophers, who think the entire universe we're living in today is a computer simulation. That is possible. But is it reasonable? I don't think it's reasonable that he didn't die on the cross. And that's why I had to jettison it as an explanation.
1: You know, what about what about people that say, well, they were they lied about the resurrection, that this is uh, a big conspiracy? I think even uh, before coming to faith, that's something that I would even say uh, as an argument against Christianity. What would you say to that?
2: Yeah. okay. I want to show you what's required for conspiracy. I know a lot of people love conspiracy theories. We just do. We love them in books, we love them in, in, um, in uh, theater, we love them in, in movies. And I'll, you know right now, we are in the midst of how many conspiracy theories related to COVID-19, related to whatever's going on, are people buying into right now? I mean, we love conspiracy theories. But here's the problem with conspiracy theories, and I'll just show it to you. And it's that conspiracies require five things. Now I'm gonna share a screen with you again, so be patient with me as I hop over here to do that. And uh, these five things would have to be present in order for any conspiracy to be successful. I just don't think they're successful. Uh, this, this is one of them. Now, do I think that there are successful conspiracies? Of course I do. But, but if, there's, if you think you know of a successful conspiracy, Jesse, it's not successful. Okay? But to be successful means you never found out. Successful conspiracies require these five things. Number one, a small number of co-conspirators. You want the smallest possible number of co-conspirators. Two people can tell a lie and get away with it better than 22. Also, you want to hold it for the shortest period of time. So it's harder to hold a lie and keep a lie for a, a, a year than it is for a day. The best conspiracy is two people go off and do something they shouldn't do, they lie about it, and the next day, one kills the other. Okay, now we're down to one, and it's a short conspiracy. Third thing, you need excellent communication between co-conspirators. Because if someone jams up one of you and says, hey, what was happening? Your story better match the other one. That's why the first thing we do as detectives is we separate suspects to see if their stories match. If they can't communicate with each other, it's harder. Also, it's easier to lie for your brother if you're in a conspiracy with your brother than somebody who is not in a relationship to you. And finally, if there's no pressure and no one's asking you, well, then you're going to be okay. Now, look, if you're telling me that the Christian story is a conspiracy, it would have to have all five of these things to be reasonable. Now, I think already the problem is there's too many people involved. It's not just, you know, James and John and, 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 and Peter, you know, the, the three. And it's not just the 12. You remember in the upper room, there were 120. Remember, there were 500 who saw the Christ on the same day, according to Paul. he talks to the corinthians let's play like a clue you remember the old school clue this is the old school clue board i'm going to change the board just slightly here's the board with the area around where jesus and his disciples did their ministry and the game pieces will be the disciples this game of clue the first question is first of all there's way too many if you ask me there's way too many that's not reasonable but how long do they have to hold it shorter is better they have to hold it for six decades you're telling me that 500 plus who saw the risen christ Held on to this and nobody recanted for 60 years. Well, maybe they had a great communication between each other. They could keep their story the same. Uh, no, they're not in that holy huddle. They're all over the game board. So the question becomes, how do I know, Thomas in India, what Matthew in North Africa is saying? How does Matthew know what, what Paul is saying? Uh, there's, there's no way to communicate in this uh, time to know that the stories, are the, and by the way, regardless of region, their stories all match even though they're separated by thousands of miles. And were they pressured? Well, you know this game of Clue, right? Clue is one of those games that has these little weapons in it. And but, trust me, these guys were pressured, seriously pressured. Remember Jack Bauer in 24, that old series? Jack would do whatever's necessary to get the confession. And that's exactly what they were trying to do with these guys. And no one ever changed their story, even though there were some others, James and John and Peter and Andrew. Matthew at the bottom of the board there, who's in North Africa, He was not related to any of these guys. As a matter of fact, he wasn't even admired by any of these guys. He was the tax collector called Levi. Yet he writes one of the earliest gospels and never changes his story. There's the problem as I see it. And I'll stop uh, sharing at this point right now. That's the problem as I see it, is that there's no, uh, is it possible this is a conspiracy? Sure. Sure. But honestly, if you have not investigated conspiracies, that's why it seems so reasonable to you. That's why it seems like beyond possible it seems reasonable. Once you've worked conspiracies, and I've done a bunch of these, I that, that doesn't give me any pause at all. I know it can't be a conspiracy. There's too many people. All those conditions aren't being met. It's not reasonable. Yeah, it's
1: great.
0: I don't know what you think about all that you've heard so far today, but here's what I do know. The resurrection of Jesus is the center point of the Christian faith. One writer of the Bible said it like this, and if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. For followers of Jesus, his resurrection is the foundation of our faith. It's not the teachings of Jesus or the Bible, it's the resurrection of Jesus that's the basis of why we can be confident that Jesus' teachings and the example of his life matters at all because His resurrection is the proof that He is who He claimed to be, the Son of God who established the kingdom of God on earth. And maybe you're not sure you buy into all that we believe, and I am so glad that you're watching with us today. My hope for you is that you'll continue to engage with us here at Community Christian Anywhere, and that you'll keep tuning in for the rest of this series as we investigate some of the big questions of life and faith because I believe these questions are worth you wrestling with for more than just during this video. Maybe you could even reach out to us by texting the the number that you see on screen right now. I'd love to talk with you about whatever questions or doubts you may have. Maybe you just want to talk about something going on in your life, and I'd be happy to do that. And as you do that, we're going to move into the time in our service where we remember the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection in the way He asked us to. On the night before Jesus was killed, He had a final meal with His followers, and He used emblems of bread and juice to represent His body and blood that was about to be given for them. He told His followers to continue to use these symbols to remember what He was going to do for them on the cross. And every week, those of us who follow Jesus take part in this meal known as communion. So right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, would you get whatever emblems you have on hand? It can be a piece of bread or a cracker to represent Jesus' body and a cup of juice or even water to represent his blood. And let's prepare to remember Jesus in this way. Once again, if you're not sure you believe all this, I hope you'll use this time to reflect on whether or not it could be true that Jesus rose from the dead. And if it's true, what could that mean for your life? Because I believe it could change everything for you. But for followers of Jesus, let's take the bread. This is the body of Jesus given for you to forgive your sins and give you the gift of new and eternal life. Let's eat and remember. And now the cup. This is the blood of Christ poured out to make a new agreement and relationship between God and people life forever in his kingdom let's drink and remember every time we eat this bread and drink this cup we are declaring the victory of jesus over sin and death until he returns one day and right now we're gonna sing a song that declares the power of Jesus' resurrection over our lives. How Jesus' resurrection is not simply a historical event, although it is, but it's also the story of our lives. For those of us who follow Jesus, He is bringing back to life in us all the things that our sins have killed the relationships that were dead in bitterness and past hurts, the behaviors that killed our integrity, the loneliness and isolation and hopelessness that is a death all its own. In every area, Jesus wants to bring life to us. He wants to resurrect our broken and dead lives. And as we end our time together, let's worship God for this.
3: The
4: head that once was crowned Is crowned with glory now. The Saviour knelt to wash our feet. Now at his feet we bow.
3: The one who
4: i e Of
3: defeat,
4: the resurrected king is resurrected.
3: I'm dead.
0: I hope today's experience was meaningful for you and that what you take away most of all is that God is for you and that we are too. If anything today raised questions for you or maybe you felt like God was speaking to you and you wanna speak to someone about that, please text the number on screen right now. Someone from our team will get in touch with you. And as always, we want your experience with us to be more than just content you consume, but a community you can be committed to. So please take a moment right now and go to our website cccanywhere.com to find out how you can get more connected with us here. There are ways to get involved in a virtual small group to discuss what you're learning here and even resources for your children. But the best way to get involved with our community is by clicking on the card on our website that says join our Facebook group. That link will take you straight to our Community Christian Anywhere group, where if you click the join group button, you'll take one easy step towards getting more involved with our community here. I hope to see you there. And as you leave today, please carry this thought with you. No matter what you think about God, He can't stop thinking about you.